0: Hello and welcome to Views from the Market, Mid-Market Private Equity and M&A in Canada. My name is Mario Negro and I'm a partner at Stike Elliott. For today's podcast, I'd like to welcome Trish Higgins. Trish is the founding partner of Chenmark. Trish, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Trish, I always start our podcasts by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves and uh, a little bit about Chenmark in your case. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and Chenmark for our audience.
1: Sure. Well, possibly the most important thing, especially for your audience, is that I am Canadian. So hey! <laughs> <woo-hoo>! <laughs> uh, So I grew up in Vancouver, and most of my family is there and in the Okanagan Valley now. So go back as as often as I can. I came down to the U.S. for college where, much to my dad's uh, chagrin, I met an American and stayed down here, got married. And I did a sort of traditional finance sort of path right out of college and worked at a hedge fund in New York City and an asset management firm and went to business school. And in 2014, so a couple of years out of business school, um, sort of myself, my husband, James, and my brother-in-law, Palmer, we were all feeling like we wanted to do something a little different. And this idea of buying sort of smaller businesses at attractive multiples uh, that generated sort of interesting sort of long-term cash flow dynamics came up, came up in a lot of different ways at the time. And we started looking around, just you know, on the internet, looking if you know there were businesses we could buy. And the more that we got into the idea we said, hey, this is something that's interesting. And also, from both from a financial perspective, it's interesting, we think we can buy these companies at attractive prices and be long term holders. And we think the financial rewards are there. But perhaps more importantly, we were sort of personally excited about getting more involved in business operations and feeling like we could do something that had a bit more of like a tangible impact. Um, Whereas our jobs were all sort of in the the markets um where we we didn't really feel like we were having as much of an impact as we wanted to and so we raised some capital from you know basically our own savings uh and uh, a small number of friends and family to get us started and we bought our first business in 2015 which was a commercial landscaping um, snow removal business up in maine which is where we moved to sort of be closer to the operations and learn more about what was going on. And sort of since then, we've refined our thesis into saying, okay, we want to buy these businesses from generally from retiring owners, where we bring our own people in to be leaders of the business. We want to be long-term owners. So we really spend zero time thinking about selling our businesses. We're just looking, looking to buy and hold. And we're looking at businesses that generate cash flows and our, our goal has always been to use the cash flows from one business to buy the next and the next and the next and so on and so forth where the early years are a little lean, but over time uh, that can be, I think, quite an interesting model. And so fast forward today, our headquarters is still in Portland, Maine, which is a a nice city. And we own nine, hopefully soon to be 10 businesses, a handful in new England, one down in Tennessee, one in Florida and two um, in Western Canada. So, it has been a busy couple of years, but uh, have learned a lot and have been enjoying the, the ride along the way.
0: And Trish, I mean, Ch- Chetmark, such a unique story in terms of the character of these businesses. Are they, you know, is the focus industrials, uh, software, where do you um, spend your time uh, looking and what is the focus of the portfolio in terms of the sectors that you invest in?
1: Well, I appreciate that you think that we have a focus. Um. Okay. All right. Great. Great. <laughs> so- the The investment committee, sort of quote unquote, is myself, James and Palmer. So we have a fair amount of discretion. So we look across industries at, at a lot of different things. And we try to keep an open mind to, you know, there are businesses out there and industries that could be interesting that I don't even know exist yet. And also, it's just interesting to us to look at a wide range of businesses. I always learn something um, by looking at a new business. And so The characteristics we have are, you know, the first question is, can we see ourselves owning this in 20 years? And where that comes is, do we believe that there's like durability and demand? And so, you know, whatever the core service is, maybe the way of servicing it changes over time, but whatever the need is, we think that it'll be there. So example is landscaping and snow removal. We think a lot of things can happen in, in the world. There can be technology changes, but Generally speaking, you know, large malls and uh, hospitals and schools will sort of need somebody to remove snow or do sort of commercial landscaping, and we feel comfortable that that's something that will be around for a long time. So that's sort of the the thought process that goes into it: is how durable do we think the demand is? That's kind of the the first one, and then to a history of, of profitability. So we don't we're not looking at turnarounds, we're not looking at highly cyclical things where, you know, they make a lot of money in one year, but they lose money the next year. So not really, you know, looking for steady cash flows. We're not necessarily looking for high levels of growth. You know, we're usually looking for sort of steady businesses that sometimes are a little overlooked and uh, businesses where uh, there's not a large like technology component, um, at least currently in the business. So those are sort of our criteria. But, you know, right now we have exposure to landscaping. We also have a, a food manufacturing business. We have some tourism businesses, you know, kind of all sorts of different things. And this kind of comes back to our at least training and more of like the liquid markets where a lot of sort of portfolio construction in you know, the stock market or um, in a hedge fund is about finding uncorrelated assets to put into a portfolio. And that sort of classical training in liquid markets certainly has had um, an impact on our view on sort of from the very beginning of how we started ChenMark, because we said, hey, you know, if we could buy assets that are generally uncorrelated to one another and own them for a long term, you know, that would be a pretty valuable thing to own. And so that's kind of the one lens that we have. The, The second sort of lens we have is We have our own sort of management training program, and most of the businesses that we are looking for, you know, to be the leader of that business does not necessarily require highly specialized technical information. So you would probably never see us getting into some sort of like medical equipment, like precision medical equipment manufacturing, or like something that requires like a high level of expertise from a leadership perspective. That's not to say our leaders don't have high level of expertise, but it can be learned. And so we're generally looking for businesses where the leadership role sort of requires very good, I would say like general management slash business 101 skills where we can put people in and feel confident that we're setting themselves up for, setting them up for success, not businesses where, you know, to be successful, The leader needs, you know, 15 years of specialty, I don't know, aerospace knowledge or something like that. So simple, boring businesses, essentially.
0: Trish, one of the things that I find the most unique about the Chenmark model, obviously, is that ability to do deals off the balance sheet as opposed to raising capital. And it's, you know, you've done an incredible job at, you know, nine deals. Can I ask, what's the secret sauce? (laughs) How (laughs) How do you do it? I mean, it's a great story. And it obviously has its advantages because you don't have to bring in continuously new investors and obviously, you know, dedicate yourself to, you know, quote unquote investor relations in the traditional sense. But how do you make it work?
1: Sure. So I would say that I get a lot of phone calls from sort of business school students saying that they want to do what we've done, which which is awesome because we've had a great time doing this. I think the thing that is hard and about this structure is that, the early years are quite lean because, you know, you are using all of your available cash flow to pool, to buy the next entity, which means you don't have a lot of extra cash to pay yourself, for instance. And so, you know, we barely took a salary for the first couple of years um, and paid a lot of, you know, the first deal we paid, you know, legal fees like out of pocket and all that sort of stuff. And so, In the early years, it was, you know, not financially lucrative. And when you're in this sort of model, it's a zero sum game between, you know, if we have, let's say $100,000, are we using that $100,000 to pay ourselves? Or are we using that to put aside for, I don't know, legal and deal fees for the next deal? And to be successful in our model, the answer to that every single time especially in the early years has to be, we're putting it aside for the next deal. And so what it involved is very helpful that we were all family. It was helpful we started it before we had, you know, kids or any like real financial obligations. And we also don't really have expensive tastes. And so, you know, we moved to Portland where, you know, the quality of life is high, but the cost of living is relatively low. At least it was when we moved here. And we live pretty frugally. Um, and still do because for the, what we call the flywheel, which is essentially, you know, at first you have one company producing cash, but then you've got two and three, and now all of a sudden we have nine, you actually start to accumulate cash, you know, faster and faster and faster as the company grows. But you have to be dedicated to building the flywheel in in the early years, which the reality is the opportunity cost for, for most people who are in this space is so high that they would never it would be very difficult to make that trade-off once you're sort of already in a really high paying job and to take that, you know, like if you're raising capital from external people, generally as part of that deal, you're always getting paid. Whereas the the path we took was definitely more risky. I think over the long term, probably a better financial outcome. But again, you know, if you're two years in, you haven't paid yourself for two years, like and all your friends are earning, you know, the big dollars in finance or law or whatever, that can be a, a tough pill to swallow. And so I think the reality is most people don't want to do that.
0: I have to ask you the end game question, because I'm sure you get this question asked because you've done nine transactions. You haven't had any exits, right? Trish, it's, it's, no build, exit. You're yep. c- continuously building. And you, you, I, from what I know of, of Chenmark, you're continuing to build, you're constantly looking for new opportunities and building and obviously you one of the other unique features about Chenmark is the feeling that you don't have time constraints, uh, and it's a nature of your structure, and it's what makes it so attractive. You can hold on as long as you want. What do you see as the ultimate long-term end game for for these investments? Is it you know something bigger together, or will eventually you look at selling? I mean, maybe it's opportunistic, but I, I'm just curious what your thesis kind of tells you, uh, given that you you know unlike other private equity firms. You know, you've you've now had investments for seven, eight years and it doesn't sound like you're <laughs> rushing to sell them. Um, so what is the long term endgame for ChenMark if you if you look at it from your your kind of your thesis point of view?
1: Yeah. So a couple thoughts there. Um, you know, First of all, is we still think of ourselves as being very early on in building ChenMark. So maybe in like the second or third inning of, of what we're trying to do. So we still think of ourselves as you know very much figuring it out, and in early days, from a big picture perspective, we don't really spend any time thinking about selling our businesses. We've had you know many offers to buy businesses at often you know what would be on paper you know a really attractive attractive return. But we also you know, understand that there's a lot of friction involved with selling. One, you generally have to pay taxes. Two, you then have a lot of cash that you then have to redeploy into other opportunities and there's a cost to that. And three, a lot of the work that our companies are doing, because you know we're long-term oriented, you know, some of our companies just now are starting to experience the sort of value associated with projects that we did in early days. And, and when I've spoken with people who are in a more traditional private equity structure. You know, a lot of their best deals, they kind of they did all the work, they sold them, and then a couple of years later, you know, the things that they were working on really started to bear fruit. And I think that we really love seeing, you know, when you have a long-term perspective, the types of things you can do in a business that pay off in four or five years, we're really starting to see the the benefits from, which is really cool. So that's to say we have no real interest in selling our businesses. The end game for Chenmark, I mean, we're really thinking about building this for the long term, whether that means, you know, maybe someday we're a family run firm. So maybe someday, you know, our kids would be interested in in taking over. They're six and three. So obviously that's a little premature um, (laughs) to be planning for that. But that's the sort of thing that we're talking about. We're really talking about how do we build this? So whether it's a member of our family or a person who's younger on our team right now, or will they step in and manage this for the long term? And, and we really don't see a benefit to selling what we have because we put so much work into getting it. And we also, I think, get a lot of value. We go speak with owners and say, we don't have an interest to sell your business if we were to buy it. And you can look at our track record to know that we're not completely full of it. And so there's a value to that that means that even like an attractive offer to sell a business right now might make sense from like a micro perspective, but from like a macro trademark perspective, it could potentially destroy value. So the end game is basically just keep doing what we're doing, try to design it from a governance perspective, so that we're not necessarily the ones that have to be involved in the day to day sort of over the long term, and keep working with small businesses, smaller businesses with retiring owners who want an exit plan. And yeah,
0: that's basically it. I have to tell you, Trish, what I love about your story is the uh, ability to create value and growth in the kind of lower middle market. You are a kind of true middle market participant, and uh, some, some people. Underappreciate appreciate what you can do with these companies and what I uh, really like about the ChenMark story is the potential that you have in front of you with these lower middle market companies and with a lot of love and a lot of care you can really go a long way <laughs> which to me is the story of ChenMark but I wanted to ask you a bit about your perspective on that I mean you clearly are 100% all in on the lower middle market and middle market given your thesis you know, you made that decision early on, it's clearly uh, done well for you, wanted to get your perspective on, you know, what made you go there. And you know, when you look back, obviously with a smile, (laughs) um, what is it about the middle market that's, you know, drives you to kind of focus on?
1: it? Well, one, I mean, part of it was just practicality, you know, at the first deal, like, you know, how realistically, how much money could we cobble together to to put a deal together and that sort of dictated what size of you know, company we could buy. I suppose if like, I don't know, I could have accessed a billion dollars, like maybe I'd think differently about it, but some of it was just kind of what can we afford and you know what's available to us. So some of it was just purely pragmatic. The second was if we're buying companies that don't grow particularly fast and have steady cash flows, you could buy them at attractive valuations. And I think that, th- that this part of the market has not seen um, or still has pockets that have not seen sort of runaway valuations. And we're sort of cheap at heart, I'd say, or frugal, maybe it's a better word. And so attractive valuations. And then the third thing is generally in this space, this is the, the fun part, I think, of the job is that in this space, you often, or we come across businesses that the owner's done a great job managing it for whatever the past 20 years but they're tired. And there's a lot of sort of operational inefficiencies in the business that just somebody with a little bit of sort of renewed energy can come in and make some changes to add value. So like small examples, like some person has 150 people on payroll and they have, they still do it all by hand, you know, they're, they're, they're tracking time all by hand, or, you know, they're have some sort of logistically somewhat complicated business, but they don't have like an ERP system to help them with routing. And sort of some of these things that, you know, the owner hasn't really had an incentive to work on because it's been working just fine, but we can come in and kind of help kind of modernize and professionalize the business a little bit and sort of one, make the business more durable um, and two, see sort sort of upside performance from a financial perspective. And I think you, you see a lot more of those opportunities. You see, I, I'd say opportunities for value creation through operational sort of professionalization, a lot more in sort of the lower part of the market, where I think in like the higher, like the big, the big deals, I think you see a lot more opportunity for value creation through financial engineering. So the use of debt essentially, or in like cost rationalization. So essentially firing people And that's two things that we just don't, that those are not part of our playbook. You know, we're really looking at conservative debt levels. We really don't come in and ever have it as part of our playbook to be firing people um, or like getting rid of offices or any of that stuff. We're really just focused on improvement through operations. And uh, that's exciting to us. And it's fun, you know, if we think about what we want to spend our days doing, we feel good about that. Um, We feel good about that approach. And that's kind of what we want to spend our time doing.
0: Trisha, I always ask our guests, the crystal ball question, um, you know, where they see the market going. Obviously it's a strange time given the macro factors, you know, war in Ukraine, inflation, interest rates, supply chain issues, given from where you sit in the market, what's your perspective on, you know, where you see uh, this market going and, you know, particularly when it comes to Chenmark and where you want to go with Chenmark?
1: Sure. Um, So of course, I know as much as everyone else, so I don't really know. But we've been holding our breath all year waiting for the bottom to fall out from a demand perspective, and it hasn't happened yet. So we're prepared for that, but we haven't seen it yet. So it always takes a little while for sort of market moves to flow through into the economy. So maybe we'll see more of that next year. But this year, we really haven't seen much of an impact. We've obviously seen inflation, but we've been pretty proactive about sort of managing price increases to offset the cost, sort of increased um, input costs. So that's been pretty, um, we've been able to offset that without destroying too much demand. So that's been good. From a deal perspective, still lots of opportunity out there. There's financing available, there's, you know, things are coming to market. I think the only thing that I see there is, you know, if, if we're factoring in, you know, potentially higher, you know, more expensive debt, potentially slower sort of increased costs, you know, maybe some uncertainty about demand, maybe sort of our thoughts on downside probabilities are a little higher than they were two years ago. That has impact on our valuations. And I think sometimes there's a little bit of a mismatch between the sellers. Well, there's always a mismatch between buyers and sellers. But right now, I feel like sellers maybe haven't necessarily accounted for um, some of those changing that they increase uncertainty in the market in their valuation expectations. So we certainly have seen some, you know, a little bit wider of a range than maybe we have before, but, you know, still possible to get deals done on, you know, we're not doing like 20 deals a year. So we only need to do a couple a year to be, you know, for our model to work. And we still feel very comfortable that we can do that for deals that make sense for us. So basically we're, I, I'm actually cautiously optimistic. I think. My macro hedge fund day training sort of suggested that whenever anybody's running around talking about how terrible the economy is going to be, you know, this might be the best telegraph recession we've ever had. And so I'm sort of optimistic that, you know, so far it really hasn't been as bad as I thought it would be. And even if it gets bad, you know, we'll just manage our way through it.
0: Trish, uh, I want to thank you for joining us today for telling us a bit about yourself. I love the Canadian story uh, <laughs> and the great success at Chenmark on so many levels. It's been great what you and the team have done at Chenmark. So thank you for joining us and me, I guess, on the podcast and, you know, wish Chenmark uh, many many more deals to come.
1: <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. It's been, uh, It's been fun.